Brought to you by JMR Rentals. JMRNY.com. Hello and welcome to No Rest for the Weekend. I'm Jason Godby, and today on the program, we got some films from 2022 that are currently in consideration for what will be our first ever awards show, Spectacular. We're going to have more on that later, but first, joining me via Zoom, he's the man behind ActuallyPaid.com, Mr. William Hammond. Welcome, Bill. Hey, hey, good to be back. It's great to see you, man, out there in Hollywood land. <laughs> Yes. I, I've heard you guys have been getting some rain. Blessedly. I mean, I mean, yeah, we get it all at once in January, so we get we get drought and flash flooding at the same time. It's just so great. We're hoping to have our first ever award show, which will be awards for films that came out in 2022. And these are going to be uh, mainly Hollywood films, uh, not the not the, you know, film festival stuff that we we cover. But, you know, films that people have actually heard of and, and will go to see and pay money for. How are you feeling about all this? I'm really excited for it. We, I think we got a good mix of uh, truly mainstream films and indies that broke into the mainstream. So I, th- I think we got a good balance here. We got some movies on the docket uh, we should get into because we don't have a ton of time. But we are going to take a little more time than the last episode we did. I think we did like 20 movies <laughs> gonna go so we're, we only got a few movies on the docket for this one uh what is our first uh, item up for bid all right first up we have women talking written and directed by sarah polly based on an actual account of a weird case that i think happened back in 2006 in bolivia this film is a bit more modernized and americanized or maybe canadianized i'm not entirely sure on the setting but basically it's a version of 12 angry men but with mennonite women it takes place in a deeply conservative mennonite community where the women discover much to their horror that they have been sexually abused for years by the men of their little commune who you know initially basically said like oh no you're being possessed by a demon or you're fornicating with satan you know as one does but once the truth is discovered the men are arrested but in the 48 hours until they're released on bail the women basically have a decision to make do they forgive the men as their religion dictates it literally says like you have to forgive the men their trespasses or you don't get into heaven do they stay in their community and actively resist the men or do they pack up as one and leave en masse? That's the central conflict of this story. Uh, the heads of three families meet together in a loft in a barn with the minutes taken by the one man they trust, played by Ben Wishaw, and they just debate what are they going to do. It's a tremendous cast. Frances McDormand has a very small role, but she serves as an executive producer. But you also have... Claire Foy, Jesse Buckley, uh, Rooney Mara, Judith Ivey in the best performance she has ever given. Um, She's mostly known for TV work, but she's absolutely phenomenal here. And there's a lot of really good nuanced uh, discussions going on here because these are women of up to four generations, all of whom have, have been raped, sometimes even impregnated from it. And they have to reconcile their faith versus 
their reality and what they can honestly do to them for themselves to live satisfying lives while also being true to the, to the traditions that they've grown up with for for decades if not centuries uh it it feels like one like i said like i said it's very it's very much in the style of the crucible or 12 angry men there's i mean there's basically just the one main set in the barn um Sarah Polly, uh, like I said, she she directed it and she wrote the screenplay. It's based on a nonfiction uh, novel uh, that was written in 2018. The screenplay is just phenomenal. Like it, it reads like a Pulitzer-worthy stage play. It really does. The directing leaves a little bit to be desired because there's not much movement of the characters. It's much more directing the the actors' emotions. They're like there's not much in the way of blocking. They basically just sit on bales of hay for for the most part occasionally standing up and walking to a different area of the barn. But I think that the quality of the performances and the absolutely stellar nature of the script makes up for that. It sounds like a solid recommendation, solid review from you. I will. I have to give you a couple of points off, though, for missing the obvious pun title, 12 Angry Mennonites. Oh, jeez. <laughs> oh, Benincha. <laughs> I'm 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 sorry I uh, missed that one. <laughs> <laughs> My God, legions of dads are laughing right now. Um, uh, so, but by the, uh, by definitely the Pennsylvania Dutch Masters. <laughs> it's uh, but yeah, solid recommendation. Sounds like a, a really solid yeah. film. Yeah, um, it's it's snuck in with a Best Picture nomination uh, with the Academy uh, this year. It's also up for adapted screenplay and has a very strong chance to win. So, yeah, it's like this was kind of a kind of a sleeper. I mean, it it had the qualifying run in December before a late January release, as far as the wider thing, which sometimes can mean that they don't really have confidence in it from the studio perspective, or that they want to basically get behind the competition and win a weekend or two here and there get the nominations and then use that prestige to inflate their box office. Uh, I think this is the latter case. Like they, the people behind this, like I said, uh, Frances McDormand was one of the driving forces behind this. And she's been the voice for inclusion quotas and uh, equal equity clauses and contracts and all that other stuff, like over the last few years uh, throughout Hollywood. So th this is a very strong product and I think they're marketing it effectively. Um, and if nothing else, if you're skeptical skeptical about the film, the title tells you exactly what it's about. I think you're right. I think this was like, let's uh, squeeze this one out at uh, awards just to get it for awards. And then since there's nothing going on in January, because, you know, obviously it's not going to be a blockbuster type movie. You know, if you're putting this against the Transformers, you know, the, or, or something like that, it, it definitely would you know, it it would probably wouldn't do great. It'll probably do better on streaming. Uh, it's just one of those types of movies. But you know, it, it's good that uh, it got some nominations. Segwaying with that, uh, another I believe nominated film we're looking at is the Guillermo del Toro Pinocchio. I was very pleasantly surprised about this. the The fact that there were two Pinocchio movies last year. There were oh, three. Yeah, right, there were three. There were three because because that Pauly Shore Russian one. I forgot. Oh, good God. But that, but this makes my point for me. 
Guillermo del Toro's movie makes you forget that the other two happened. The terrible Disney remake and the god-awful Russian animated CGI with Polly Shore. Yeah, thankfully we can expunge those films from our memory because of how well del Toro does this one. I mean, the two things that struck out to me, uh, that, that, that stuck out to me just amazingly well, one is the quality of the stop motion animation and the character designs. Carlo Collodi's original book is basically like a series of small adventures and short stories. And for the most part, this version embraces that and kind of goes into the darker territory. I mean, it's Guillermo del Toro, what do you expect? And it feels more natural in this kind of setting. Like the Disney remake has Geppetto creating Pinocchio because his son died which just seems like Disney tacked on dead relative stuff. Whereas here, it's the same situation. Pinocchio is a replacement for a dead son, but Del Toro earns that pathos because of the torment and deep grief and sorrow that Geppetto goes through having lost his son in a random bombing raid during World War I. That's that's the big twist that he's put into here. He's moved the timeline up by about 40 years. Collodi's novel, I think, was written in the 1880s. He begins this film in the 1910s and goes into the 40s, or goes into the 30s, I should say. Geppetto's son is killed by a random bomb drop while he's while he's working on a crucifix in a church just for pure irony, and years later, still gripped with unimaginable grief he creates Pinocchio in a drunken stupor, cutting down a tree born from an acorn that his son kept in his pocket when he was buried. And Pinocchio is half-formed. He's hastily put together. He only has one ear. There are splinters and twigs all over the place. His The back of his head is a m- bit of mallet smashing. There's true emotional heft almost borderline insane violence in this creation that is born from grief and love. There's so many wonderful layers of contradiction that really do speak to the human experience in just the act of making Pinocchio. Then, of course, as he's brought to life and has his adventures, he's, he's not overtly jerkish like the uh the italian version from a couple of years ago and he's not truly gullible like the disney version but he is endlessly curious and they try to play that more for comic relief to to lighten the mood on things because this movie really does emphasize how final death is for everyone but him and just about every character is an analog to an aspect of his personality that he needs to learn to become a complete person, even if he never truly becomes a living boy of flesh and blood. And again, the, the timeline move here, this was the other thing that just really sold this movie for me, moving it up to the era of fascism, using Benito Mussolini as your villain, for lack of a better term, like like seeing how the world transforms through the most mindless and crass of actions in the name of basically ego 
contrasted with a puppet who is created with nothing, no id of any kind, and it's formed through his experiences rather than a sense of entitlement like the the leaders of fascist Europe at the time. It's a it's a brilliant juxtaposition. Did you see it in the theater? Yeah, yeah, I got I got to see it in the theater about uh, a month before it came on Netflix. There was a there was a limited run where uh, it came. I think it came to L.A., New York, and Chicago very briefly, like for a two week run. Because even though Del Toro had the agreement with Netflix, he wanted this scene on the big screen, and it does show on the big screen. Yeah, I was kind of sorry. I saw it on Netflix, and I really I liked it. Um, I I kind of it did is one of those movies. I like yeah, I probably should have seen this on a bigger screen. I think um, it definitely goes deeper. I mean, it's very Del Toro. It's kind of you know it's Pinocchio meets Pan's Labyrinth in a way um, because that also takes place during a war and there's fascism. What I really liked about it was it wasn't the same Pinocchio that we've seen before. It was it was so much different than the Disney version, which is probably the most famous version of. I mean, even though there were three this year. The original animated Disney version is definitely the most famous of the uh, multiple versions of Pinocchio. This, of all of the ways to make it, I think stop motion is illustrates like the wood looks so real. Everything's got like a three dimensionality to it, and I also think the um, I also think that the the sensibility. I never really thought of Pinocchio as a dark story. But it works, you know. It works in this type of tone, and I think, um, you know, I first saw Del Toro in stop motion when he did Hellboy Two. With the uh, there's a great that great opening sequence was all with uh, stop motion puppets, and I was like, yeah, I would definitely love to see this guy. It's like you know when Tim Burton did uh, uh, Nightmare Before Christmas. It's just like a match made in heaven kind of thing. Yeah, him and Henry Selick. Yeah. Um... And the thing is, even with the darker aspects here, there's still some really good lighter moments. I mean, there's some great music, which I'm amazed did not get nominated for an Oscar. The, the, the song Chow Papa was nominated uh, for a Golden Globe and, and was shortlisted, but it didn't get in. There's a song about how Mussolini poops himself, and it's hilarious. Um, you have a very game voice cast, uh, Ewan McGregor, Tilda Swinton, Kate Blanchett playing a monkey, just just, just a monkey eking except when it's like puppeting other puppets that she then uses her real voice. You know, David Bradley as Geppetto, he could have made a better casting, but even in these, you know, comic moments, they're still speaking to the overall theme of building a life rather than building an artificial being. Like, like again, to compare it with the awful Disney remake, there, there's a scene in, in the Disney remake where... Pinocchio, almost like as a deus ex machina, lies and his nose grows, but it happens to like hook a, a, a ring of keys to get him out of a cage. That that's that, that's just lazy writing. Whereas here, a similar situation is used where he figures out that if he lies, he can grow his nose and use it as a means of escape because it's a very very nuanced life lesson that sometimes dishonesty is the better route. There are going to be times in your life where it is better to not be fully honest. And it's like, that actually teaches the kids something. It's not a black and white, easy, paint-by-numbers moral. There are always these delicious shades of gray to it. That's what, that's what makes it feel, for lack of a better term, alive. 
And yes, it's played for laughs, but if you think about it for a couple extra seconds, like you do remember, holy crap, I wish I could have seen this as a kid. You know, because we've had literally generations grow up with the Disney version. It'll be interesting to see if this new version catches on. I don't know if it will. I think parents might think it's a little too dark. I don't know. I don't have kids. uh, But, like, I I do feel like there might be some of them say, oh, look at this cool, nuanced, innovative way of telling a story. And then someone who might say, ah, just let me put the Disney one on, you know. Uh, Also, this is pretty long for an animated film. Uh, and, and I don't know if it's not, it doesn't feel like a kid's movie to me. Yeah, m- m- more of a, like an eight to 10 year old movie rather than a, like a five year old's movie. But at the same time, 2021 was almost a woeful year for animation. Like, you, Encanto won the Oscar basically by default, but really, apart from that, you had Mitchell's versus the Machines and Flea from Denmark as the triple nominee for animated documentary and foreign film. But that was basically the end of the quality for animation in 21. It came roaring back as an art form this year. Like, easily four of my top ten movies this year were animated. Uh, not not just not just with with uh, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, but Inuo, Marcel the Shell, Wendell and Wild. You talk about Henry Selleck and Nightmare Before Christmas. He's the one behind that. There were so many thoughtful, insightful entries that also are just endlessly entertaining. Uh, This is one of the best of the bunch, certainly. And I hope many, many people get to see it. All right, let's move on. The next film, um, which I thought was... I have mixed feelings about it. I'll I'll get into it. So Banshees of Inisherin, Martin McDonough starring Brendan Gleeson and Colin Farrell brings the team back from in bruges which is a really good movie if you haven't seen in bruges this is two lifelong friends find themselves at an impasse when one abruptly cuts off their friendship and the consequences are alarming the movie is set against a war with the with ireland and the british right around uh, irish independence so you've got that sort of you know cannons in the background kind of thing very not subtle symbolism between a civil war and a war literally among friends it's got a wonderful cast gleason and farrell are amazing as they were in in bruges what did you think of it this was one of my favorites of the year i'm kind of hopelessly in the bag for martin mcdonough at this point i mean in bruges seven psychopaths three billboards and now this like the man has yet to misfire as far as i'm concerned but this is weirdly like i think this is his first film that is purely irish even though he himself is an irishman it's kind of weird that he hasn't really covered this terrain before because it's his it's his home turf really i mean i mean in a sharon doesn't exist it's 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 an island it's a fictitious island off the coast of mainland ireland but it but there are other very idyllic pastoral rural islands that, that that's around uh ireland as it is both on the atlantic ocean side and in the irish sea so it's so it's a believable setting what struck me about this film not just with the performances because yeah yeah colin farrell and brendan gleason are, are at the height of their powers and not to be not not to be ignored are Carrie Condon and Barry Keoghan in fantastic supporting worlds as well. The big thing here is that, yeah, like you said, it's a, it's a, it's an obvious microcosm of the big war for Irish independence going on on the mainland, but it's also kind of this great form of melancholy irony because yeah, you have an actual war with people trying to, gain their freedoms for the first time in in their 700 year history basically 
And then you have these two schmucks arguing about why they want to argue, basically. Like, I mean, Brendan Gleeson wants to cut off his friendship, and he cuts off a whole lot more. Uh, spoilers, I guess. <laughs> uh, he wants to end this friendship because he's grown bored of Colin Farrell. That's it. He's just bored of him. He finds him monotonous and banal. And with what time he has left on this planet, he wants to focus on, you know, writing folk music, leaving a legacy behind. And that and that's the brilliance of this, because both men essentially want the same thing. They want to be acknowledged. They they, they have personal needs that need to be met. It's just that on Gleason's side, he feels that it, he has to fulfill it for himself. And on Farrell's side, he feels he needs to have it through interpersonal connections, especially in an area so insular where everyone knows everyone. There is no bit of gossip that doesn't go, no, doesn't like spread like wildfire and is known by the entire community. So any change in the status quo is a life altering event for him. I mean, he's a simple dairyman and his best friend in the world no, no longer wants anything to do with him. Like, and what's worse he knows he didn't do anything. He's even told he didn't do anything. It's just Gleason's finished with him. It's like it, it, it's a it's a concept that it's so hard to wrap your head around. One of the things that uh, in the movie it's it's definitely uh, comes through is that Gleason is it's really not about his friendship with Farrell. It's the existential dread of I'm gonna die. And I'm gonna and I and I have more years behind me than I do in front of me, and I think that it's one of those films that the older you get, probably the more you'll appreciate because time does run out, and we all have that realization of like, oh man, I better get going, or else, you know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna have left anything behind, and it's a, you know, I would definitely recommend it. I think people should see it as I think you would as well. But it's one of those films that I don't think I can watch again. Like, it's not, you know, it's not, not something I'm going to pull out once a year and be like, hey, let's check out this gem. Like, you know, like it, it's, it's, a, it's a good movie. It's well-made, well-acted. It looks gorgeous. McDonough does a fantastic job, especially with the performances. It, it does. It is reminiscent of his early Irish plays. You also have the the other characters. You know, you got the people in the bar and so forth, which are all very real, well done characters. But I, I think the character of Colin Farrell's sister, yeah, Carrie Condon, Chabon, yeah, I think she is feeling this as well. And I think what Gleason does by breaking off the friendship, I I feel that ignites something in her. It gives her permission, yeah. Yeah, it, 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 she says, you know what? I don't have to stay here. You know, I, I can do something different in my life. The late, great uh, Stephen Sondheim said in the song, you only leave two things behind in this world, children and art. And Gleason's realized, he's like, I don't have any kids. You know, yeah. I don't, there's nobody, there's nothing to leave after me. So I, all I can leave is my music. It's a very arty, you know, kind of thing to say in a movie, but, you know, it, it's well said. Yeah, it's, it's very resonant. I mean, especially if you... If you grew up in a small town, if you've ever if you've ever come from those kind of like rural areas, all four of the main characters really do represent the different types of people you will see in these towns. You you have Gleason as the one who wants to make something of himself. 
you know, whether it's by staying in town or leaving or doing just something a bit more than the banality of existence of his existence. Carrie Condon is the one who needs to get out for the sake of her own soul, basically. Colin Farrell is the one who wants to just make a comfortable life for himself in in an area where he knows he's never going to face true risk, and he's content with that. And then Barry Keoghan, as you know, a very yes, he's he's a very slow character. He's the one who has no chance. He's never going to get out, no matter what he does. And, and again, like if you've ever lived in these communities, you can point out all four of these people everywhere you look. All right, man, I got to wrap up uh, for people who want to, because you've reviewed these films on your website. For people who want to read your reviews, get to know more about you, where can they find you on the web? I'm at actuallypaid.com. Uh, on, I'm on Twitter at actually underscore paid. And I'm on YouTube. Uh, I actually paid to see this. Uh, the uh, the Oscar Blitz is well in order right now. We're going to have you back to talk about some more films as the lead up to the awards. But for now, thank you all for taking this trip down the rabbit hole once again. Now, for more of our content, you can always find it on the website, norestfortheweekendpodcast.com. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app or on YouTube, youtube.com slash getbehindtherabbit. Once again, I'd like to thank my good friend, William Hammond, and the folks at JMR Rentals for sponsoring this episode. For Behind the Rabbit Productions, I'm Jason Godby. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.